acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's July 2021, and Zeb Hall is going to work. Get out of my car, you know, I'm working a nail net for a contract. 30 bucks an hour, I'm fucking happy. It's been nearly a year since he's seen Mickey Windecker, or really anyone involved in the protest scene. And I walked back to my car because I forgot something, came back out, and I saw those letters. As he's walking back to his car, Zeb sees a man wearing a blue jacket with three large yellow letters on the back. He said, um, Zebedias Hall. I was like, yeah, FBI. It was hard for me to hear anything else after that. And I just put my hands up in the air because I'm thinking these dudes are going to just fucking straight up shoot me. And I'm freaking out and shaking everything. And my, I'm like, fuck, you know, I'm, you know, I know I'm getting arrested. FBI agents search Zeb and his car. They take his belt and his shoes. Then they take me to like a this um, holding cell, and I'm freaking the fuck out. Zeb has just one question. Was it Mickey? I'm Trevor Aronson. From Western Sound and iHeart Podcasts, this is Alphabet Boys. Episode 10, America Didn't Send Its Best. Among the racial justice demonstrators in Denver, Trey Quinn is the only one who is really on to Mickey. I, I, think he's, I think he's fucking suspicious. Trey had proposed a hypothetical idea to Mickey back in August 2020. What if a neighborhood were set on fire? And Mickey told Trey that he knew some guys who could make that happen. Trey was smart enough to suspect that that's the behavior of a Fed. But Trey never has definitive proof until the next month when he's arrested. I had the day off, and when I went back to work the next day, uh, one of my coworkers was like, hey, yeah, the cops came here looking for you, and you weren't here. And I was like, what? And I was like, oh, shit. 
Here we go. Here we go. At the time, Trey's working at a Sherwin-Williams. From inside, through the windows, he sees a police cruiser pull up right behind his car in the parking lot. And I see two cops walking through the doors and then two more walk through the doors and then one more walks through the door and stands at the door. They come up and they're like, Trey Quinn, yeah, we got one for your arrest for inciting a riot and so on and so forth. And so I was like, I ain't leading no protests. You know what I'm saying? I ain't leading no protests, which was true at this time. What Trey means is that as the protests had become more violent with the attacks on the police stations, he had backed away. So Trey wasn't technically leading the protest any longer. And so then they cuff me. I, I, we get outside and there's a shitload of cop cars out there. And they toss me in and whip me away. Just whew, hoist me away. He and five other organizers are arrested that day for activities during the demonstrations in 2020. Trey's charged with inciting a riot, engaging in a riot, false imprisonment, and obstructing government operations. When I was being detained and questioned, they passed me off to the feds. Trey is taken into an interrogation room. And so when the feds came in the room and introduced themselves to me, Mickey was the first name that they dropped. For Trey, hearing the feds mention Mickey from the very beginning, he knew what that meant. They were trying to gauge his suspicion. I mean, why else would you do that? And so I said, what do you know about Mickey? And they said, well, we're trying to figure that out. And that's obviously a tell right there. And so I knew right then and there, he's, he's, he's working with these guys. Prosecutors, after deliberating for nine months, eventually drop all the charges against Trey. The five other protest organizers who were arrested also have their charges thrown out. Their cases were bogus. But the damage to the movement is done. Mickey's operation in Denver is coming to a close as the feds, with the help of local officials, start hauling in some of the people he's been secretly recording. Well, they showed up at my house. They showed up at the park that I was at with my girlfriend and her daughter. And they showed up at my best friend's house. This is Bryce Shelby, the guy who discussed with Mickey and the FBI undercover agent a plan to assassinate Colorado's attorney general. Or was it the district attorney? A vague plot that ultimately went nowhere. They said I was under investigation for pretty much saying I was going to murder the attorney general. This was on November 3rd, 2020, the same day of the presidential election. The cops seemed on edge. So they, they patted me down and shit like that. And it was really light. First off, like for your listeners, I'm not trying to be amusement or poke fun or no shit like that, but it was almost like they were still scared in whatever way. It was like they were still afraid. Like this motherfucker, he still got something still, he, you know what I mean? It was weird. They take Bryce's assault rifle from his home, but they don't arrest him. Bryce isn't being charged with a crime. Instead, local prosecutors use the evidence the FBI collected to ask a court to take away Bryce's gun for a year under Colorado's so-called red flag law. Bryce is a potential threat to the community, prosecutors argue. Local media run with a story. His name is Bryce Jordan Shelby, and this is his mugshot from 2011. Law enforcement officials present Bryce's case as if the assassination plot was something a lot more than it was. 
This is from the local Fox affiliate. KDVR. Process accuses Bryce Jordan, Sidney Shelby of surveilling Attorney General Phil Weiser's home. The 29 year old is now accused of plotting to shoot Attorney General Phil Weiser in the head. He's planning to shoot the state's top law enforcement official in the head and, quote, does not care if A.G. Weiser's wife, dog, or children have to die in the process. In a hearing to take away Bryce's firearms, a Denver police detective testifies that the FBI had reached what he called an impasse and had not been able to build a prosecutable criminal case against Bryce. Probably gets a little blurred because I did say certain things, so that's like whatever they're in, some way to put it for intent and shit like that, you know what I mean? But yeah, not going through with any kind of plan, payments and shit like that. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? No. Zeb Hall isn't as fortunate. After buying a gun for Mickey and being there that strange night when Mickey recorded the video making threats and saying he wasn't a snitch, Zeb backed away from all of it and everyone, including Mickey. Things had gone too far, had become too dangerous. The revolution, that can wait. Police say Shelby, who self-identifies with the Black Panther Party, also said he wanted to, quote, eliminate the mayors and police chiefs of Denver and Aurora. Zeb sees on the news that police have taken away Bryce Shelby's guns. Zeb's been very slow to come around to this conclusion, but by now, he's finally beginning to suspect that Mickey's an informant. So, and this is kind of bizarre, given that suspicion, but Zeb sends a link to a local news article about Bryce to Mickey. And, uh, you know, that was when I text Mickey out of nowhere and I said, you know, I guess fuck around, I'll find out. And he says, yep. And kept it at that. That was in November 2020. Months pass. And in July 2021, out of nowhere, Zeb gets another text from Mickey. According to an FBI internal report, agents asked Mickey to reach out to Zeb in anticipation of securing an indictment against him and to determine his whereabouts. Checking to see how you doing, Mickey writes. Zeb texts Mickey that he's surprised to hear from him. He also says he's distanced himself from everyone who participated in the demonstrations. I think you're paranoid, LOL, Mickey replies. Nothing against you and your crew, but the past year was dangerous, Zeb writes. At this point, Zeb is scared of Mickey. Is he a snitch, as people have claimed? Or is he just some crazy, badass motherfucker? What if he comes looking for me? Zeb thinks. I even bought a gun because I was just afraid of him. I was fucking terrified of this guy. I always kept it up in my closet and everything. You know, I took it out with me a few times just because I was fucking afraid, kept it in my car. I don't know if that's legal or not, but I was just fucking terrified of this human being. About two weeks after that out-of-the-blue text exchange with Mickey... Zeb's at work and walks back out to his car. He sees a bunch of guys wearing FBI jackets. They're waiting for him with a federal indictment. Zeb's been charged with transferring a firearm to a felon, an offense punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000. Zeb is about to enter a criminal justice system that's rigged against him. More after the break. Claim 
comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up <laughs> you couldn't believe it from iheart podcasts it's like the police knew who he was before they got here a story about money power and corruption the medical school dean at usc was leading a secret double life he's breathing right now yes he's absolutely breathing i'm a doctor actually there's no way that that guy's a doctor i'm paul pringle and i'm an investigative reporter for the la times this is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. No doubt the FBI was hoping for much more with Zeb. Some sort of headline-grabbing criminal case related to a bomb plot or a plan to kill a politician. But Zeb never moved beyond tough guy talk. And tough guy talk isn't a crime. The FBI got Zeb on what's sometimes called a backup charge. FBI agents will often entice targets to commit lower-level crimes, in Zeb's case, buying a gun for a felon, so that if the big case doesn't work out, at least they have something to show for all the work and all the taxpayer money 
report into their investigation. In Zeb's case, there are two problems, and I think they highlight the fundamental absurdity and unfairness at work here. The first is that Mickey and the FBI had engineered a relationship with Zeb in which Mickey was the alpha. Mickey portrayed himself as dangerous and violent. He had pictures of dead ISIS fighters on his phone. When Zeb bought the gun for Mickey, how much of what he did was driven by fear of Mickey? And I'm thinking, like, yeah, this dude is fucking crazy. But I don't think it hit completely that he was complete fed at some points. But when he asked me to do that shit, I was like, oh, fuck. I knew I wasn't safe if I said no. And second, what Zeb did only happened because the FBI secretly enabled every step of the process. And they gave him money to give to me, you know. Right, so you used the so you basically used FBI money to buy a gun that essentially went back to the FBI. Yeah, your tax money. <laughs> Our tax money. Zeb ultimately decided to plead guilty to his felony case. This is not at all uncommon for an American in his position. The federal criminal justice system is designed to produce plea deals. Over 97% of all criminal convictions in federal court are the result of plea agreements. This is due entirely to the horribly lopsided risk of taking a federal criminal case to trial. If Zeb had presented his case to a jury, pitting his overworked public defender against the limitless resources of the Justice Department, he would have risked spending up to 10 years in prison. But if Zeb takes a plea deal, the Justice Department will recommend that he not spend any time in prison. I felt that if I fought it, they find some way to label me as a domestic terrorist. And so I figured, yeah, it's better to take the plea. Zeb has no real choice here. He's screwed. The House always wins. Well, maybe not always. The summer of 2020, all that anger and fear. Can we really say anything changed? Maybe. I mean, there's been some accountability. In Aurora, Colorado, the police officers and paramedics responsible for the death of Elijah McClain, the unarmed black man who was injected with a lethal dose of ketamine, they were indicted on state criminal charges. Now, a 32-count indictment. Two officers, a former officer, and two paramedics each face a count of manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. Four of the five also face assault charges. And a federal jury ordered the city and county of Denver to pay millions in damages to demonstrators who were injured by police during the protests. Denver has to pay up big time, $14 million to 12 people over the police department's use of force during protests over the murder of George Floyd. This civil case was the first in the nation to take to trial accusations of police brutality during the summer of 2020. A jury ruled in favor of protesters today who say DPD violated their civil rights and used excessive force when officers used tear gas and fired pepper balls at them back in 2020. Oh, and remember Colorado Springs? The undercover cop with her pink hair? Those activists got some results too. The city ended up settling a lawsuit with the family of Devon Bailey, 
who was fatally shot in the back by a police officer for $3 million. No doubt, public pressure and all those demonstrations played a role in making those small changes. In that way, Zeb and the other protesters accomplished something. But it came at a cost for Zeb. He's pleaded guilty to a felony charge. And with his sentencing hearing coming up, he's concerned that, despite assurances to the contrary, the judge could sentence him to prison for using the government's money to buy a gun for the government's agent, who then gave it to the government. On September 7th, 2022, Zeb walks into the federal courthouse in Denver for a sentencing hearing. An hour later, he calls me. Hey, what's up, dude? How you doing? Hey, Zeb, how are you? I do all right. Got a three years probation. They said I could probably get off after one. The probation and the prosecutor, you know, they argued for three. My, pro- uh, my attorney argued for one, but they kind of tied it to political events coming up. Uh, maybe the 2024 election and any other uh, events. Um, because um, they directly brought up the January 6th incident. Um, and saying that, you know, there's the potential that if something like that happened again, Mr. Hawker just just swept up into it. So do you feel do you feel good about it? Uh, no, dude, I don't. I don't deserve it. And I don't feel good that they want to cover up the fact that local, state and federal law enforcement caused violence here. I don't feel good about it. I don't feel good about it. So here's something interesting. During the hearing, Zeb's judge mentioned January 6th, the insurrection. It's interesting because as the FBI and the Justice Department were focused on racial justice groups, they turned a blind eye to right-wing extremists who ultimately stormed the U.S. Capitol. David Bowditch, the FBI deputy director who compared the racial justice protests to 9-11, had said just days before January 6th that the Bureau was ready to respond to any problems. Bowditch and the FBI were, of course, proven very wrong. After January 6th, Bowditch quietly retired from the FBI. The immediate reaction among right-wing news media and politicians was to tap into the same narrative they'd used during the summer of 2020, that Antifa was the boogeyman. We really don't know who is behind this. I guess you could call these, uh, for lack of a better word, Antifa-like tactics. We don't know if Antifa is out there. January 6th, maybe it was Antifa. If Antifa was there, we need to root it out and to make sure that that's called out because it shouldn't be blamed on groups that weren't responsible. The last couple of times we've seen these rallies, it hasn't just been the president's supporters. We have seen Antifa, we have seen Black Lives Matter. These claims, and many others like them, had an effect, exaggerating the threat of anti-fascist activists while downplaying the threat of right-wing extremists. Even the FBI, from top to bottom, appeared to be influenced by the Antifa boogeyman claims. Here's Michael German, a former FBI agent who regularly testifies before Congress. How can you not have seen 
the way the Proud Boys have committed violence all across the country in the four years prior to January 6th. They committed violence in in Washington, D.C. at Trump rallies in November and December of 2020. Agents had fallen for the false narrative about Antifa activists. And that allowed for a deadly bias. That somebody in a position of authority of the FBI could have such a divergent view of the necessary preparations the FBI should be making for a Black Lives Matter protest versus increasingly public white supremacist and far-right militant violence, I think, highlights that bias. In Senate testimony two months after the insurrection, Jill Sanborn, then the FBI's assistant director for counterterrorism, was asked why the FBI was unaware of social media communications concerning planning for the attack on the Capitol. Under our authorities, we cannot collect First Amendment uh, protected activities without sort of the next step, which is the intent. And so we'd have to have an already predicated investigation that allowed us access to those comms and or a lead or a tip from a community citizen or a fellow law enforcement partner for us to gather that information. That isn't true. It's total bullshit. Because that's exactly what the FBI did in Denver in the summer of 2020. The issue in stopping January 6th wasn't the FBI's lack of power and authority. The issue was that the FBI was blinded by its own hand. It was running around trying to create bad guys in the racial justice movement while ignoring the very real bad guys who would soon bring violence to the U.S. Capitol. On top of all that, the FBI helped destroy the racial justice movement. Just look at what happened in Colorado. Racial justice leaders like Trey Quinn began to disengage following the rampant mistrust that Mickey had created. The Denver chapter of the Young Democratic Socialists of America imploded after Mickey used the group and its members to bolster his credibility among the demonstrators. There's no longer a YDSA in Denver. Eventually, the mass demonstrations intended to call attention to the deaths of young Black Americans at the hands of police. They stopped. Some of this, no doubt, was a natural occurrence. All political movements eventually stop. But the FBI's undercover work in Colorado hastened that collapse. Mickey's work for the FBI follows a long pattern. The FBI did the same thing in the 1960s. We had congressional investigations, reforms, and we told ourselves, this doesn't happen anymore. But it does happen. It happened in Denver in the summer of 2020. That summer, President Trump and right-wing media told us that we needed to be afraid of the Antifa boogeyman. It turns out, they were right. There was an Antifa boogeyman. He drove a silver hearse filled with guns. He advocated for violence and destruction. And he was created and controlled by the U.S. government by the FBI. And now, I need to find Mickey. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm parked near some rundown apartments south of Denver, in the city of Sheridan. There are two square white buildings. Each building is split in half, with two units on each side. One upstairs, the other downstairs. The apartments are designed in what's known as shotgun style. If you were to fire a gun from the front door, it'd pass through the back door, a straight line from door to door. This is the apartment that Cassie Windecker shared with Mickey. The same one where Mickey was arrested for grabbing Cassie by the neck and slamming her against the table. 
I had long assumed that Mickey wouldn't talk to me. After all, remember his life rule? Fuck the three Ps. The politicians, the press, and the police. I mean, we know now that's not exactly true about the police. Mickey was a professional snitch. But I figured he was likely serious about at least one of the other Ps. The press. Still, I want to find him. To try to talk to him. While reporting out this podcast, I met with a lot of people who knew Mickey. Most were terrified of him. And many didn't want to be recorded or have their names revealed. Several of these people told me the same thing. Mickey isn't in Denver any longer. But then, I did get this one tip. My best chance of finding him? Go to his old apartment. The guy who lives there, I was told, is Mickey's close friend. In journalism, doorstepping is industry slang for an unannounced visit. It's a last resort. You doorstep someone when other efforts have failed. And I've done this enough to know the likeliest outcome is that no one answers the door, even if someone is home. So I write a note to leave along with my business card and say, I'm interested in speaking with Mickey, but it's work for the FBI. Hello? I can see inside through the closed screen door. The apartment is a mess. Piles of stuff everywhere. With, strangely, several vacuum cleaners lined up against the wall. One of the bedroom doors is closed and no one's responding. I place my note and business card under the door and I leave. And later that evening, I get a surprise when Mickey actually calls me. But I miss the call and it goes to voicemail. Yeah, this is Michael Vindecker. This is the voicemail in its entirety. Lynn, you know, right now, that address you went to posting that piece of paper saying that I worked for the FBI and shit. I don't live there. I haven't lived there in months. But if you post something, a story about me saying, suppose I worked for the FBI, I will sue the shit out of you. I will take you to court and I will break you off in court for defamation of character and slander. I've already notified my attorney about this. My previous landlord notified me and sent me these uh, papers that you put on the old door I used to live at stating that I worked for the FBI. I do not work for the FBI. I've never worked for the FBI. If you get proof of me working for the FBI, then I'll say otherwise. But there's no proof because I didn't work for them. Don't be posting stuff on my old apartments where my neighbors, my old neighbors are thinking that I'm an FBI consultant or whatever the hell it is, okay? If you, if you do that again, I promise you, I will sue you. That's a guarantee. Don't fucking do that again. Don't come to my old house. Don't be posting stuff that's not true. 20 minutes later, I receive another voicemail from a blocked number. I'm just letting you know, Michael Windecker has not lived at this address for probably now mid-fall of last year. Remember, I had heard that a friend of Mickey's still lives at the apartment where I left the note. So I ask that you please not come by my address again. I do not need heat on my house. Um, if you do come back by my house or apartment, 
I will notify my local law enforcement. Do not send anybody else in your place. I do not mess around with stuff like this. Thank you for your time. Good luck and goodbye. It doesn't take a master of deduction to figure out what likely happened here. I left the note by the door. Mickey's friend found it and he called Mickey. They then come up with a plan. The friend will call me and say he doesn't know how to reach Mickey, leaving me at a dead end. It's a solid plan, honestly, if Mickey's looking not to be found. But if this was the plan, Mickey screwed it up. This voicemail would have been the dead end. But Mickey couldn't stop himself from calling me first. And he does what we now know he does when he's cornered. He lashes out and makes threats. He's going to sue me, Mickey claims. Break me off for defamation, as he put it. And Mickey didn't call from a blocked number. So I call him back. And he answers. Hello? Hi, this is Trevor. I'm sorry, I missed your call. Yeah, Trevor, this is Michael Bindecker. Um, I got a call from my landlord that you posted a note on my old apartment that used to live at state that was an FBI consultant uh, or something like that. Yeah, so so I'm a journalist and I'm doing a story on your work with the FBI during the summer of 2020. And I've been trying to reach you. Um, I worked for the FBI during 2020. You did. I, I have records and video and audio proving this. Records and video and audio of me working with the FBI. That seems kind of weird because I didn't work with the FBI. You were paid um, $5,000 every two weeks during the during your work with them? That's not true. Well, that's what the records say. But I would love to talk to you about this. Uh, I'd like to interview you about your work during the summer of 2020. No. See, the thing I don't do is I don't talk to the press, I don't talk to politicians, and I don't talk to the police. So. Mickey then threatens again to sue me for defamation if I report that he worked for the FBI. And he hangs up. So I call back. You've reached Command Sergeant Major Smokey. At the tone, you know what to do. Hey, Mickey, this is Trevor Aronson. I know you're probably uh, surprised to have gotten my call, so I understand why you would have reacted the way you did. Um, I just want to make clear that I have definitive proof that you are working with the FBI. These include records, these include audio, these include video. And this is absolutely unambiguous. So what I'm hoping to do is to get you to kind of tell what happened. You know, getting your account of what happened is very important. Um, I understand that you would have various reasons to not want to be exposed as an FBI informant, um, but that's likely going to happen no matter what with this project. So I would very much like to talk to you. So give me a call and let me know how we can might a, how we might arrange this. Mickey has never responded. I followed up with texts and additional calls. I've also sent him screenshots of some of the FBI undercover videos to prove to him that I'm not bluffing. Still nothing. He clearly doesn't want to talk to me about his work for the FBI during the summer of 2020. And the FBI doesn't want to answer any questions either. The FBI's press office declined to make anyone available for an interview and refused to provide written responses to a list of questions I sent. The day after Mickey calls me, I head over to Zeb Hall's apartment in Denver. It's a three-story building. Zeb's place is on the top floor. Inside, the kitchen and living room are together, 
a single room. It's sparsely furnished. Zeb has a large desk in the corner and a couch facing a television. All right, let me get this. What did you, just doing a sound check. Okay. I set up my recording equipment. Zeb is sitting in a chair next to his desk. I'm on his couch. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was I finally got a hold of Mickey. Oh, yeah. And he left me a message and I wanted to play it for you and get your reaction. I play Mickey's voicemail for Zeb. Don't be posting stuff on my old apartment where my neighbors, my old neighbors are thinking that I'm an FBI consultant or whatever the hell it is, okay? If you, if you do that again, I promise you, I will sue you. That's a guarantee. Don't fucking do that again. Don't come to my old house. Don't be posting stuff that's not true. What do you think of that? But he got paid, though. <laughs> it wasn't a donation, you know. It's like, you know, hey, man, I didn't work for him, but, you know, they gave me some bread for, like, you know, yeah. The payment records I have for Mickey appear to be incomplete. But what I have shows he was paid every two to three weeks, sometimes $5,000, sometimes a little less. I can confirm that he made more than $20,000 working for the FBI that summer, though I suspect Mickey earned significantly more. FBI informants can make in excess of six figures a year. The fact that Mickey was paid a lot of money by the FBI is significant because FBI internal reports suggest that Mickey wasn't motivated by money to work as an informant, but instead by a desire to be a good Samaritan. Who is going to believe or want to work with a good Samaritan who has all these charges? Doesn't make any sense. Zeb's talking about Mickey's many criminal charges, including assault, sexual assault, and menacing with a weapon. America didn't send his best in at that point. Um, I'm pretty sure there's some good people in the FBI, but the FBI didn't send their best, <laughs> you know? It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, America didn't send its best in Mickey Windecker. I don't know if Mickey's still working for the FBI. As a policy, the FBI will neither confirm nor deny that anyone is an informant. One of Mickey's friends had told me that he'd stopped working for the feds and that he's now living in Nashville, clocking hours as a motorcycle mechanic. I called as many motorcycle shops in Nashville as I could find, and no one had heard of a Mickey Windecker. And it gave me chills just now because he's, he's, he's a bad guy. Bad guys attract bad guys. And... I feel like he's going to keep doing this forever. Cassie, Mickey's third ex-wife, had told me that Mickey is such a master of deception and has so many people who will cover for him, wittingly and unwittingly, that it's impossible to know what's true. If someone claims Mickey's in Nashville, Cassie says, then it's a good bet he's not in Nashville. Cassie believes her ex-husband is a kind of dark force riding into town after town to extract financial gain from the suffering of others. She thinks Mickey is out there, still working for the FBI, and still trying to set up unsuspecting guys like Zeb Hall, Bryce Shelby, and Trey Quinn. One thing I've learned is they will use a little fish to get the big fish. And I think in these cases, they use the big fish to get all the little fish because Mickey is... He's a shark. And not in the good badass way. It's a nasty shark. And, you know, if they can get a bunch of little fish, 
and a bunch of, you know, just, just, just get people, you know, and, and hurt them. And, you know, especially with the Black Lives Matter thing, you know, when you told me about that, I was just like, great. This is like a carnival for him. He doesn't give a shit about people. He doesn't give a shit about helping people or, you know, making their lives better. No, he's doing it to make money. And I don't know how much longer he's going to keep roaming the streets, but it's almost like talking about the Night Stalker or something, you know, or Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, when are they going to get caught? You know, they're out there and they're going to do it again. I, too, think Mickey's out there somewhere behind the wheel of a silver hearse, secretly taking orders from the FBI. Well, I guess. Not so secretly anymore. This was Trojan Hearse, season one of Alphabet Boys. And coming very soon, season two. So you do personal security all over the world. You're connected to all these different people. It's an alphabet soup with the CIA, the DEA, and the FBI all mixed up in the same case. And you had somebody call you and say, can you get yes. grenades and guns for this guy in Colombia? Not, not specify grenades, a lot of ammunition. Ammunition, AK-47. It's the story of a jet-setting Romanian businessman, a brash Colombian drug runner, a call to the CIA, and a $17 million arms deal that goes really, really wrong. At the center of everything is Flavia. But who is Flavia? When I land, there's Flavio in a suit. It's like, follow me. Is he a secret agent? And he slams down his badge and, and my passport, and they just stamp it. And I'm like, oh, something's going on here. Is he an arms dealer? You have to come to Montenegro to discuss with your friend, because I have everything right now in my hand. Or is Flavio something else entirely? This call is from... An inmate at a federal prison. Alphabet Boys, Season 2. Coming soon. Alphabet Boys is a production of Western Sound, Nyheart Podcast. It's reported, written, and hosted by me, Trevor Aronson. Bennett Dare and I are the executive producers. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. The producer is Nicole McNulty. Original composition and mastering is by Alex McInnes. Sound design by Alex and Dan Leone. Eleanor Knight is our production assistant and fact checker. Additional production help from Victoria Shiflett and Stella Hartman. Additional research by Margot Williams. Sam Pearson designed our cover art. Special thanks to Brian Loma. Executive producers for iHeart Podcasts are Nick Stumpf, Bethann Macaluso, and Lindsay Hoffman. For more information about this series, or to drop us a tip, head to alphabetboys.xyz. You can contact me on Twitter or Instagram, at Trevor Aronson. We believe this story is important and could result in changes to FBI oversight and public policy. But to have impact, people need to hear the story. So we need your help. First, tell your friends about the show. Personal recommendations are the best recommendations. 
Second, spread the word on social media. At alphabetboys.xyz, you'll find FBI undercover recordings and secret documents. You can share the stuff the government never wanted public. Third, help us ride the algorithms by leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. That helps other people find us. And finally, thanks so much for listening. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.